Welcome to the Office Space Podcast, where we discuss relevant topics that are affecting occupiers of office space. I'm your host, Dougal Jeppe with Colliers International. And today our guest is Patrick Depoy. Patrick is an associate at Brian Cave Leighton Paisner Law Firm. He is a member of the firm's Labor and Employment Client Services Group. His practice focuses on employer-side labor and employment law, including employment-related litigation, traditional labor, compliance counseling, best practices, employee policies, and human resources training. The reason Patrick's on my program today is because as companies consider having their employees come back to work, I think it's important to understand the current labor laws in light of the recent pandemic. I'm certainly not an attorney, nor do I play one on TV or this podcast, but I have been asked many times, uh, more than any time in my career, questions like, can I force my employees to come back to work? What if someone refuses? What is my responsibility for making the workplace safe? So these are some of the topics we're going to discuss today. First off, Patrick, welcome to the program. And if you could, um, tell us a little something about yourself, your role at Brian Cave, and, and about your firm. Thanks so much for having me, Dougal. Um, so I've been practicing labor and employment law for about six years, uh, three of those at Brian Cave, Leighton Paisner. Uh, we're a global full-service law firm with approximately 1,000 lawyers, although that varies from year to year. Um, and our, our employment and labor team is a fraction of that total, but we have a global presence, uh, and it's been great during COVID to draw on that global expertise, especially when we get some of the, the trickier questions that come up. Got it. So um, if you could just give us a little basic framework of how the labor laws are set up, both you know, nationally, regionally, and, um, and how it operates. Sure. So one of the trickier things about um, navigating the workplace uh, legal framework during COVID is um, there are a lot of laws that lay on top of each other, I'd say. It's kind of like a pyramid. So um, they often go hand in hand, but they sometimes conflict with each other or they add requirements on top of each other. Uh, before we get started, I just want to kind of make sure I'm using the right terminology. Traditionally, when we talk about labor law, we're really talking about collective bargaining, union rights, um, things of that nature. But for most office uh, employees, they're, they're, they're usually dealing in a non-union context. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that means that generally when we talk about that kind of workforce, we're talking about general employment law. So anything from uh, non-discrimination laws to uh, the Fair Labor Standards Act on how to pay people when it comes to COVID, um, certain leave provisions that we'll get into later. But that's kind of the dividing line between employment law, which is really non-union, and labor law, which is when it comes to things like collective bargaining agreements and things like that. So to your question, you know, there's kind of a basic um, bottom of the pyramid, which is federal law that kind of sets the baseline for all employers across the country. So a good example of this is the Fair Labor Standards Act establishes a national minimum wage um, and requires employers to pay overtime, things like that. But from there, states can add on requirements. So states like Illinois, California, lots of others have higher minimum wages. And they also have certain rules when it comes to wage payment, um, how often it needs to be made, how breaks are regulated, things like that. And then if you get even higher in the pyramid, uh, some localities, including the city of Chicago, Cook County, they have their own ordinances. Um, In the wage context, Chicago has its own minimum wage for employers that operate in Chicago. So this makes things a little bit tricky. 
um, especially in the context of COVID, when one of the most basic questions we got at the beginning of the pandemic was, am I allowed to operate at all? Or am I allowed to have employees in the workplace or not? And so navigating those um, intersections between federal, state, and sometimes local law is, is one of the real challenges that employers face, especially during COVID. Okay. So what should employers be concerned about right now? Mostly, if you were to prioritize it, let's say. Right. So right now, I think the number one question we get from employers is, how do I open in a way that makes my employees safe? Um, early on in the pandemic, it was the question was, am I allowed to operate at all? And to answer that question, you'd have to look at local and state shelter in place orders. So for example, in Illinois, Governor Pritzker, relatively early in the pandemic, um, established a shelter in place order, but allowed essential businesses as defined by the order to continue operating. Well, that term was pretty broad. It, can, it, it covered actually a lot of office environments, including lawyers, right? So that led to the question of, okay, even if I can operate um, and I can open, how can I do that safely? Um, depending on your location, there may be certain recommendations or requirements that you need to look to um, to make sure that you're, you're complying with the recommendations to ensure that if you ever face any kind of litigation, you can say that you relied on the, on the recommendations and best practices put out by your city, your state, um, and certain federal entities like the Centers for Disease Control um, and, and other government entities. So for example, in Chicago, we're currently in phase four of the reopening process, which means we're gradually resuming. Uh, generally speaking, offices and what we, you know, what we might call white collar workplaces, they can open with certain precautions. Um, Chicago has recommendations like, you know, no gatherings of more than 50 people, limiting capacity in indoor spaces to 25% of that room's official capacity, certain other things like physical barriers, staggering start and stop times to avoid bunching. Um, so those are the recommendations that a city puts in place to allow you to bring your workforce back. In addition to that, at the federal level, uh, there's, again, that kind of baseline of what's called the Occupational Safety and Health Act, what everybody refers to as OSHA. Um, OSHA is something we usually think of in terms of you know, factories or construction, but even in an office setting, um, you know, there are certain minimum standards that you have to provide a safe um, and non-hazardous workplace for your employees. Right now, during COVID, um, OSHA put out what they called kind of a risk pyramid um, that dictates what it recommends employers think about when they're opening their workplaces. So for most, uh, for most employers that operate an office, um, they'd find themselves in the category of low-risk office places. So office places where you can safely socially uh, distance you know, between workstations or between offices. You're not dealing with the general public on a regular basis. Um, and so OSHA just kind of sets out recommendations on what you you should do as a bare minimum and patrick is that something that's online someone could look that up yes if okay. you if you would google something like osha covid safety recommendations one of the first things will, that will come up is their their assessment of of risks and um you can look through those again for office workers um, and office workplaces most of them are probably already implementing the safety measures required by osha Mm -hmm. So then from there, okay, so OSHA sets the baseline. Beyond that, certain states and local governments are also requiring things like temperature screenings and health questionnaires. 
even for local governments and states that don't require that, um, for a lot of our clients, they are they are implementing these as a safety measure to really kind of put just one additional guardrail to ultimately avoid anyone coming to work when they are sick and when they're infected with COVID. So let's start with temperature screenings. One thing that um, COVID is uh, very frustrating, uh, it's very frustrating about COVID is it has so many symptoms. Temperature screenings, um, when somebody walks into the office place, or if you're not operating an office, when somebody comes into your store, is kind of one good way to, while not catch all symptoms, at least try to identify the people who would clearly have a temperature, right? So we put together um, for our clients, and we put a lot of information out there uh, on some of our blog posts about exactly what you should consider uh, when you're implementing a temperature screening. I can't go through all of them because it would take up the entire podcast. Um, but one thing I would say is um, a, a, a question we often get is, do I have to pay my employees for the time that they spend waiting in line or taking their temperature at home before they come into the office? We've been recommending that for non-exempt uh, hourly employees, that is people you pay by the hour and who aren't salaried and whose time you record, you give them some fraction of your recording, uh, your timekeeping uh, lowest amount, right, that accurately reflects how long it generally takes to uh, record their time. It's kind of an open question under federal law whether or not this will be covered. Um, and there are state laws on top of that, and I, I won't get into the details here. Um, the other thing that we recommend is making sure that when you're keeping any records about this, um, you know, Definitely keep those confidential because under the Americans with Disabilities Act, these kinds of things could be considered a medical exam. Um, and that and therefore, it's almost like you're keeping a medical record and you need to be, you know, you need to be careful when it comes to who has access to that and things like things like that. The other thing is a, a health questionnaire, which you can ask employees to fill out every day or the night before they come into the office that asks them to verify a couple things. First of all, that they haven't tested positive for COVID in the last 14 days, um, that they don't have any active symptoms of COVID, and you can define those symptoms in your questionnaire to be very broad um, and match with the CDC's definitions. You can also ask if they've had any close contact with someone who's exhibiting symptoms or um, who you know, has tested positive themselves for COVID. Um, you know, you can also ask, you know, that's a way to ask someone if they um, have been potentially exposed to COVID without asking invasive or uncomfortable questions about someone's family member or someone's household, right? So um, that's, that's kind of where I think of it from the front end of how do we, what can we do to keep people with COVID or people who are sick out of the office? Um, another good thing to do is just really communicate that anyone who is experiencing symptoms of COVID or feels sick at all, just stay home, right? Stay home, mm -hmm. especially mm -hmm. in an office setting. If you can work from home, we can get to that later if we talk about mm -hmm. accommodations and things like that. But mm -hmm. for someone who's feeling under the weather, erring on the side of caution, I think is not only um, a prudent business decision. I think it, it makes sense from a liability mitigation standpoint, right? To say that you've right. effectively communicated people who are sick should stay home. So, so Patrick, I'm going to stop you for a sec. Let's say you've done everything right as an employer. You've done the temper, you've set up temperature screening, you've got your health questionnaires, you've put directional signage in the space, you've got the hand sanitizer units, you've reconfigured right. so that everyone has the distancing. Yep. Can you force employees to come back under that environment? 
Um, what, sure. what are the liabilities around that? So the short answer is mostly yes, right? So um, when you have set up a, a safe work environment and you've done everything that the CDC and other state and local authorities have recommended, um, and if anyone needs, you know, you know, links to that stuff, I can provide that later and you can include it in any kind of show notes. But once you've done that, you can say it's time for everyone to come back to work. Um, what you need to be careful of is that under the Americans with Disabilities Act, there may be people who say, I have a particular medical condition that makes me particularly susceptible to serious complications from COVID. And therefore, I need to continue working from home. What that would be considered, and what we're considering that, and so is the EEOC, and that's the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission for those who, you know, if I start using the alphabet soup of federal law, stop me and I'll define it. Um, Employees have the right to request a reasonable accommodation that would allow them to perform the essential functions of their job if they have a disability. So one example that we sometimes get is what if somebody says, I have asthma, and if I contract Mm -hmm. COVID, uh, that could lead to a serious medical problem for me, and therefore I can't come to the office. Employers don't have to kind of take a deer in the headlights approach, right? Um, They can treat this like any other request for an accommodation. They can ask for additional information from that employee regarding, you know, the, the extent of the limitations. They can ask for medical documentation to support um, that this person actually has the disability that they're claiming. Um, They can offer other potential accommodations Uh, that would address the risk factors for someone with asthma while requiring them to still come into work. Um, The ADA and courts interpreting the ADA are very clear. They say an employee is entitled entitled to a reasonable accommodation, not necessarily the accommodation that he or she wants. So uh, this is all part of what's called the interactive process under the ADA. What I would recommend is a lot of communication with employees um, back and forth to make sure you're really understanding what they need that you have the documentation that sets up um, kind of what they're asking for. And then eventually, if you have any really particularly tricky questions, you should contact your employment counsel to walk you through any, any potential booby traps. But the short answer to your question is yes, you can require people to come back to work, but make sure you're catching these, um, these particular issues. The other issue that has come up recently is, well, what if um, I have, a couple employees who are over the age of 65, I hear that they're in a higher risk group. What the ADA uh, actually requires, and the EEOC has put out guidance on this, is you can't just assume that that person can't come to work safely. Uh, And you would actually get yourself in trouble by saying to Jim or Jane, Jane, I know the whole office is coming back, but you're 62, so we're going to ask you to stay home. Um, Or even if it's somebody, let's say you know they have asthma, right? you know, John, I know you're you're looking to come back, but we're going to make you stay home because we don't want you to put yourself at risk with asthma. There's a very careful analysis that needs to be done under under circumstances like that called the direct threat analysis, meaning you can tell somebody they can't come to work if they pose a direct threat to themselves or other employees. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can't jump to that conclusion. And in fact, what the EEOC recommends is, again, engage in that dialogue with the employee that you're concerned about to see what their comfort level is and what you might be able to provide in terms of an accommodation to let them come back to work. And Patrick, what's at risk here? I, you know, in terms of if you're putting dollar figures on some of these lawsuits that an employee would have with an employer, 
you know, what's at risk here for, let's say, one employee that maybe you mishandle or they feel you mishandled and they, they sue the company because either they claim it was age bias or something like that? What, what, what's at risk? Sure. So let's, let's start with somebody who says, I contracted COVID from the workplace and yeah. it's your fault. Mm-hmm. Um, first, I think that would be incredibly difficult to prove. I mean, what we know about COVID is that you can catch it in any enclosed space that you spend time for more than 10 or 15 minutes. So how an employee would ever prove that they contracted COVID at your workplace, unless there's something like, you know, we've seen factory settings where there's a real hotspot. I'm not sure how they would do that. Second, um, under, under most state laws, uh, there's what's called a workers' compensation bar. So typically speaking, if you get ill or you get injured at work, your remedy is not to bring up a personal injury lawsuit. Instead, you file a workers' compensation claim and you're compensated accordingly. Um, what comes with that workers' compensation system is the bar, right? You can't file, a, generally speaking, except you know, there are certain exceptions, but you can't file a workers' comp, uh, you can't file a personal injury lawsuit for an injury at work. So okay. let, let's start from there. What about the employee who says, well, I'm being treated differently because of my disability, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There are uh, you know, pretty extensive um, uh, damages available to someone who brings an ADA claim, uh, including, especially for someone who, let's say they were denied an accommodation, but they weren't terminated um, and they, weren't, you know, they haven't lost any lost wages or anything along those lines. The mm-hmm. real trick is that plaintiffs can recover their reasonable attorney's fees which for a plaintiff's lawyer who brings a, a, a lawsuit, even a single plaintiff's lawsuit, can be mm-hmm. you know, thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, mm-hmm. There's also, you know, for particularly egregious conduct, there are things like punitive damages, emotional distress damages. I think in the scenarios we've been discussing, that's probably unlikely, but it's, it's still something that's out there, which is why you need to be so careful when you're navigating these, these tricky issues. Okay, yeah, complicated. Uh, and how how will this pandemic, um, the effects of the pandemic, change future employment laws? I think one of the biggest changes will come in how uh, state, local, and even the federal government think about uh, paid sick leave. So as part of the emergency response to COVID, Congress passed what's called the Families First Coronavirus Relief Act that includes um, emergency paid sick leave for leave related to the the coronavirus, right? Two weeks or 80 hours of emergency paid sick leave. And additionally provides what's called expanded FMLA leave. Um, Under the Family and Medical Leave Act, you can, you know, you can take 12 weeks of unpaid leave, generally speaking, for a a, a medical condition, either for yourself or a family member that requires serious care. Congress said, we're going to expand the FMLA to cover child care for people dealing with COVID, right? Your school or your childcare provider is closed down and we're gonna provide partial pay. Um, Typical FMLA leave is unpaid. This expanded FMLA leave is partially paid and uh, reimbursed by the federal government through tax credits. So I think one thing people are gonna start um, advocating for at the federal level and definitely at the state level too is, if we were able to do this during COVID, why can't we do it all the time? Why can't we have a mandate um, that requires employers to, you know, give paid sick leave. Most employers already do that, um, especially in most office environments. There's at least a minimum amount of paid uh, time off, whether it's vacation or sick leave. Um, also, if you're in Chicago, 
you're actually required to provide a certain amount of paid sick leave to your employees. But I think that that's something that's going to change from a legal perspective. From an office environment setting, you know, I've been hearing a lot of people say, no one will ever go back to the office. I mean, everybody will just work from home. Um, I, I love working from home occasionally, but I also, in a lot of ways, miss my office, right? I, I don't know if I'm the oddball, uh, but I think there's something you're not, said. you're not good. <laughs> there's something to be said for getting together with your coworkers, your colleagues, having somewhere that is your designated workspace as opposed to your home office, your second bedroom, your kitchen. Um, so, uh, you know, from a legal perspective, I think paid leave might be, uh, might be kind of the new, uh, you know, an area of the law that takes on a new perspective after COVID, especially since people were really strongly advocating for paid leave already. And now here we are with COVID. So, yeah, well, um, there's a lot to unwrap here and a lot more to follow up on. I'll, um, yeah, if you have some other resources and I'll get your contact information in the show notes. Um, I know there's all kinds of scenarios that we could play out here. Yeah. Um, but for the purposes of fitting this in a digestible timeframe, I'm going to wrap it up here. Um, really appreciate it. Uh, like I said, this is, um, very relevant and um, important for employers to know um, what they're kind of getting into and employees as well. So uh, hopefully there'll be some follow-up from this and really appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Patrick. Take care. You too.